This is Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 37, The Great U-Turn, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, Ben Reitzes, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our outlook for U.S. and Canadian rates, high-quality spreads in foreign exchange, and the main narratives driving our forecasts for this year. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So January was a very volatile month as the market priced a more hawkish Fed. Two-year yields are now about 45 basis points higher, while 10-year yields are up 25 basis points. The market is pricing in five rate hikes by the end of the year, with a chance of a 50 basis point move at liftoff in March. The final month of QE runs from February 14th to March 11th with purchases of $20 billion in treasuries and $10 billion in MBS. A few short days later, on March 16th, the Fed is expected to raise rates, moving from QE to tightening, the great U-turn. The March liftoff has been well telegraphed by the Fed. The uncertainty lies in the size of the move and pace of tightening, and the market is attempting to recalibrate to the tightening cycle. What we do know is that the rate of the moves will not impact the inflation that is on the ground today due to the monetary policy lags, but the pending rate hikes certainly impact inflation expectations. Therefore, the Fed's near-term goal is to be credible about their price stability mandate until they have a better understanding of how inflation evolves as supply chain issues diminish and the labor market evolves. They are simply buying time. The Fed has no control over the supply chain issues, so they need to slow demand by just enough, but not too much, until the supply chain issues resolve. Very tricky. There are several factors that should dampen inflation outside of the rate hikes. These include, as mentioned, expectations for supply chains to improve and for the massive fiscal and monetary impulse to growth to be waning, and of course, The impact that it had, which was propping up GDP, is also ending. So there's an elevated amount of uncertainty, and this calls for a gradual approach to tightening. Simply put, the Fed does not want to find itself in a place where they have shocked the economy at the same time some of the pandemic-related frictions and the decline in stimulus take effect. Again, they can't fight today's inflation with current monetary policy, so it's all about what's projected. At the same time, They must stand ready to move more aggressively if warranted. And this is where Powell's messaging of nimble comes into play. So when the FOMC convenes in mid-March, they'll ask themselves, 
What do we know now that we didn't know in January? How have our forecasts for inflation and employment changed? What are the risks to these forecasts? And what rate change is appropriate given this information? If they believe 50 basis points is justified, will they move by 50 basis points? Chair Powell certainly left the door open at the January presser. If so, can they control the market narrative? So the debate is centered on the size and pace of rate hikes and the timing size and pace of balance sheet normalization. As mentioned, the market is currently pricing in the chance of five rate hikes and the possibility of a 50 basis point move in March. The impulse behind this is that doing more sooner reduces the risk of a hard landing. So let's kick it off with the debate about the pros and cons of 50 basis points versus 25 basis points. Ian, you're holding your call for four 25 basis point rate hikes this year. Why do you think the Fed is unlikely to move by 50 basis points in March? Well, I think that there are a variety of risks that the Fed has faced in terms of its messaging thus far. And as you pointed out during the press conference, Powell did leave open the possibility for a 50 basis point move, but then subsequent Fed speak attempted to rein in those expectations. And so while I'm typically not inclined to fade what's priced in in terms of the consensus, i.e. five rate hikes this year with a terminal rate of, let's call it 175 or higher, the reality is that there's so much uncertainty at this moment and it's abundantly clear that the risks associated with monetary policy is that they will have to move higher more rapidly than a slow and steady gradual pace. I'm operating on the assumption that by the time we actually get to the March meeting, that we will have a lot more clarity in terms of how growth is shaping up for the first quarter, as well as the employment landscape, to say nothing of the fact that we'll also have additional inflation information between now and then. So at its core, I think that the Fed all else being equal, would like to adhere to the 25 basis point a quarter cadence and, if need be, add in additional 25 basis point moves at the off-cycle meetings. Again, very sympathetic to the five or even six rate hike narrative, but I expect that what we're doing right now as a market is we are riding the hawkish momentum a bit too far, as is the tendency of financial markets. Well, and the reality, Ian, is that the difference in terms of economic impact of going 25 basis points versus 50 basis points is actually marginal. But it's more about the signal that the Fed would be sending. And for me, some of the possible signals could be that a 50 basis point move would be acknowledging that they are behind the inflation curve and there's a chance the market would price in additional 50 basis points moves. To your point, the Fed talk this week tried to move away from that, saying that they don't believe they're behind the curve. But the other signal is it could be that the Fed is concerned that inflation is out of control, a bit of panic, or it could be that the Fed is being led by the market and the old proverbial tail wagging the dog, which they really don't like. Of course, the risks to the market of going 50 and the market pricing in additional 50s would be a faster unwind of leverage, the risk of destabilizing the financial system, equity market declines, which turn into the wealth effect on the economy and the possibility of a negative feedback loop and a hard landing. 
Yeah, I'd actually add that they'd crush the curve as well, because if we saw a 50 basis point liftoff without extremely explicit guidance that we'll be shifting back to 25s every meeting or every quarter, then the market will simply interpret that as the cadence for this cycle. So if they go 50, the market will assume gradual. This cycle means 50 every quarter. And that's where you get a massive repricing in the front end. 10 and 30 year yields might move marginally higher, but ultimately the story would be a further underperformance of the belly of the curve, flattening in fives, thirties, flattening in twos, tens. And I don't think that that's what the Fed is trying to achieve at this point in the cycle. And this was something that was really relevant from what we heard contained within the dovish Fed speak that the market got earlier this week. The concern, exactly as you point out, Margaret and Ian, is that any larger liftoff or more aggressive hiking campaign is going to serve as even more of a flattener in an environment when the Fed is probably a little bit concerned on how flat the curve already is before we've even gotten a liftoff rate hike. We heard from George and Bostic that may be leaning a bit more heavily on running down the balance sheet as opposed to larger or more frequent rate hikes could serve the purpose of removing accommodation, offsetting some of this inflationary pressure, without adding fuel to the flattening fire and pushing 2s, 10s, and 5s, 30s even lower than the flats we've seen set early in this year. Yeah, so Ben, you know, in terms of balance sheet rundown, the Fed in the past has wanted it to be like watching paint dry. Powell recently said at the press conference that they would like it to be in the background. And that, to me, is very inconsistent with using the balance sheet normalization process as a real tool of monetary policy. I think it's a very risky proposition because they don't really know how it transmits through to the economy. So I think that the Fed... If they want the balance sheet to be in the backdrop, they have to run it down in a very measured pace so that it does not transmit into the economy. And the background argument also speaks to the idea that they're not going to be selling securities directly out of SOMA into the open market, rather that they'll focus on maturities. I recall that the last time the Fed started the balance sheet normalization process, there was this idea that the Fed could, and they certainly always can, sell securities outright into the market. And our take at the time, and I think this still resonates, is that would only be an initial shock in terms of repricing. And it's effectively a card that can only be played once. And the value of the potential to do that if the situation gets bad enough might in effect be more than the actual execution. Margaret, can I ask a question? I don't personally know if inflation is out of control, but if the Fed does believe it's out of control or there's a significant chance that it's out of control. Is there merit in the Fed starting liftoff with a 50 basis point hike in March? I think the Fed does not want the market to believe that they think inflation is out of control. They cannot control today's inflation with today's policy, period, because of the monetary policy lags. I do think that the pros for going 50 is that the real Fed funds rate is deep into negative territory. And if they can get inflation down, of course, that would help that. But by some measures, it's at historic lows, like negative 6.75. There's still a significant amount of accommodation in the economy. So I think the other argument is that 
it's likely the Fed would have liked to have lifted off in January if they hadn't still been engaged in QE. Therefore, they could probably justify a 50 basis point move in March, simply making up for not having gone in January. The third argument, and Stephen, we've talked about this before, there are six weeks between the March and May meetings. So maybe they go 50 basis points because they think it's justified. But I do think if they go 50, they are acknowledging that they are behind the inflation curve. Now, the risks, of course, of going 50 include that the market might price additional 50 basis point moves. Some of this could be offset with the messaging in the presser. And in this case, by the time the Fed has more information about how the economy is looking with the withdrawal of accommodation and, of course, the supply chain frictions hopefully easing, those different factors should dampen inflation. I think it's a real fine balancing act here because they need to tighten, but not too much where they choke off demand and the economy is not in good shape to handle the supply and the continued reopening that is likely to occur over the next six to nine months. And Margaret, while the Fed has shown us that they're ready and willing to act to offset inflation, I completely agree with you that they've made it this far with the market pricing in 125 basis points of tightening without any real dramatic tightening of financial conditions. Sure, we've seen the FCI move off the easy extremes, but generally speaking, risk assets are holding in fairly well. We've been able to make it this far in the conversation about normalization without any plunge in equities or material blowout in credit spreads. So if the FOMC wants to maintain this relatively orderly market paradigm, the pros and cons of the 25 versus 50 argument, to me at least, would seem to favor being more gradual rather than more aggressive. But I think it's your point, Ben, the market's giving them the chance to do 50 so that they take the opportunity and then use the press conference to talk the market off of pricing an additional 50s. It's certainly a possibility, but not our base case. Yeah, Margaret, I think that's a really good point, and it leads into what I think is a really important factor in this decision, which is, like Ben mentioned, the performance in risk assets has been very strong amidst tightening financial conditions, and it gives the Fed an opportunity to show that they are taking the threat of inflation seriously by potentially going 50 basis points next month, which would, I think, dampen inflation expectations, and it would allow them to see financial conditions tighten further without having the adverse effect of a serious drop in equity market prices or widening in credit spreads, which would would constrain corporate financing. And the tightening in financial conditions would, I think, give the Fed some cover from this elevated inflation. Well, you're right to the point that a 50 basis point move would not have any serious macro impact on inflation. It could work through financial conditions, and that gives the Fed a little bit more time with respect to fighting off this inflation. So, Dan, your market in particular is especially vulnerable to the portfolio normalization. And as we know, the Fed purchased $4.6 trillion, quite a bit of 10-year equivalents taken out of the marketplace. And now there is chatter in the marketplace that the Fed might begin normalization in July instead of what had been expected a few short weeks ago instead of the October start. Do you think that if they move the timing of balance sheet normalization up to July, that that implies a more gradual runoff of the portfolio? 
Yeah, Margaret, I think the runoff of the portfolio is going to be relatively gradual no matter when they start it. If you look at just how much the Fed has increased the size of its balance sheet over the past two years, any reduction, assuming that it's not way beyond what market expectations are right now, should not be to materially impact risk assets until late this year, or early next year. So that's our base case. Again, it will obviously depend on the pace of normalization, but because of how much the Fed added to its balance sheet, it's not likely to really start to tighten financial conditions until reserves become more scarce. And I don't think we're close to that level right now. I think they need to deflate the bubble slowly. You know, they purchased a massive amount and they can't just completely reverse course immediately. The issue for the Fed, of course, is that the maturity profile is weighted towards 2022, 23, where so much is running off, it gives them the opportunity to get the portfolio down if they begin it sooner. But I agree completely with you, Danny. I think it's going to be gradual and maybe even more gradual than the market expects because they want it operating in the backdrop. And there is a component of the way in which the Fed runs the portfolio down that I also think will contribute to the broader market impact. Soma still holds just north of $300 billion in bills that they're likely going to want to let run down, not to mention the fact that the broader stopping of reinvestment holds some meaningful implications for the issuance profile. While the February refunding announcement is broadly expected to show another round of coupon cuts, it probably won't be in the too distant future that we need to see coupon auction sizes, along with bills, start to grow again to make up for a potential funding gap caused by lessened Fed reinvestment. I'm not so sure this is going to be a game changer in terms of the shape of the curve or the outright level of yields, but as we think about how the issuance landscape is going to take shape next year, it is definitely a very important variable to consider. And Ben, to your point, we're going to have the $60 billion two-year auction sizes running off, and to simply have zero net issuance in twos, you have to maintain $60 billion auction sizes. So the Treasury will be looking at possibly funding over $500 billion a year in 2023 and 2024, which either is going to result in record coupon auction sizes in the current tenor or the introduction of a new tenor. But given that we're all on the same page and that at least initially the Fed is going to want to be gradual in stopping their reinvestment, the early days of any funding shortfall will probably be pretty easily absorbed by the bill market, which still has room to grow as a share of relative debt outstanding and still be in the preferred range for the Treasury Department's perspective. Given that Yellen will want to be regular and predictable in the issuance schedule, I think it's safe to assume that once there's greater clarity from the Fed on exactly how it is they're thinking about winding down reinvestment, Treasury is going to want to be very early in their messaging and very transparent in how they're thinking about making up for that difference beyond just increasing bill auction sizes well in advance of the actual execution of those increasing auction sizes. I agree, Ben. I think there is plenty of room in bills and they can also stop cutting coupons in May, which would allow them to pre-fund some of it, but certainly something to watch. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the FX market. Stephen and Greg, as you know, the market's now pricing in five rate hikes this year and the possibility of 50 in March. How are the currency markets reacting to this? So at the beginning of the year, as markets moved to price in pretty much what the Fed communicated last week. The dollar surprisingly did not react by moving higher with two-year yields, for example. 
In the wake of the FOMC, we've seen sort of a resumption of normal correlations and the dollar rallying alongside short tenor yields. But the response I would still characterize overall as small. Would it stay small if the Fed moved in increments of 50 or if it didn't characterize balance sheet reduction as paint drying, the way you phrased it before? I think if the Fed were to be ungradual in either one of those ways, that's probably where you would see a somewhat chaotic move higher in the dollar and a lot more action in foreign exchange markets. And I point out it put pressure on other central banks that seem to be wanting to mirror what the Fed does. Um, and I'll point to specifically Bank of Canada, RBA, RBNZ, Bank of England, sort of moving as, as a group and feeling their way through this tightening process. And the Fed being more aggressive in that way, it puts a lot of pressure on this group. Yeah. You know what, Greg, if I could just chime in there, I think you made a lot of important points, particularly about other central banks trying to mirror the Fed. We have to wait and see the data over the next few weeks. And if the Fed does end up delivering a 50 basis point hike in March, it's going to be all about how the Fed telegraphs it. But if the Fed really believes that it has a serious inflation problem on its hands, it's going to make coordination, for want of a better word, between the Fed and other central banks more difficult. So I could see a case where if the Fed is very aggressive, that could force the ECB into action earlier. For example, if the dollar rallies significantly, as you're pointing out, Greg, I could see a case where that would force the ECB to normalize quicker. Greg, you mentioned the Bank of Canada being impacted by the Fed, and that is very much the case. And we've already Seen that to some extent last week, the Bank of Canada stayed on hold despite market being fully priced. But the chatter about a 50 basis point rate hike from the Fed has created similar chatter in Canada as well. And as much as Governor Macklem has, I mean, pretty much laid out the fact that they're going to be raising rates in probably a number of meetings consecutively, that really hasn't done that much to erase any of that 50 basis point talk. So if that heats up, if 50 basis point talk heats up further for the Fed, you can believe the same is going to happen in Canada as well. Another key factor for Canada and, and really, frankly, the world is oil prices. I mean, we've had a nice move up here and potential conflict between Russia and the Ukraine is providing some support, but supply and demand fundamentals are pretty solid as well. And I think the key point, and this goes back to the inflation picture generally, is central banks can't control energy prices. They can't control oil prices. And if we get another big surge in energy prices, that's going to really defeat the narrative that inflation is going to pull back significantly in the second half of the year. So the outlook for energy really has a big role to play through the course of 2022. Greg, maybe you can expand on that a little bit. You know, Ben, the oil rally that we've seen this year is really quite remarkable. Here we have the Omicron wave restricting travel. We have the U.S. selling oil out of its strategic reserve and OPEC increasing output. But despite those things, oil has rallied to prices we haven't seen since 2014. So I have to ask the question, what if the pandemic fades over the next six months as we approach peak travel season? Might oil break $100 a barrel, which could cause a repricing of other things, like top-of-the-list airfare in addition to gasoline? We know from a couple of episodes earlier this century that the Fed's mantra is normally to look through inflation caused by oil. But that wasn't at moments where the U.S. CPI was on a seven-handle like our most recent December CPI print. So I just pose the question, if an oil surge leads to rising inflation expectations 
and that leads to a general repricing of many goods and services. Can the Fed stay gradual, or might it feel backed into trying to stop the spiral, even if it can't directly control the price of oil? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's definitely a factor to keep a close eye on. Certainly, Greg, it's a fluid and dynamic backdrop that's likely going to result in the continuation of choppy markets. We do have a variety of outcomes that are possible. As you mentioned, we think it warrants caution on the part of the Fed, especially at the onset. But certainly, it's going to be an interesting few months as we watch the data unfold. Okay, so that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts, and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 37, The Great U-Turn. As always, please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 